There was once a merchant in the famous market at Baghdad. One day he saw a stranger looking at him in surprise, and he knew that the stranger was death. Pale and trembling, the merchant fled to the marketplace and made his way many, many miles to the city of Samara. For there he was sure death could not find him. But when at last he came to Samara, the merchant saw waiting for him the grim figure of death. Very well, said the merchant. I give in. I am yours. But tell me, why did you look surprised when you saw me this morning in Baghdad? Because, said death, I had an appointment with you tonight in Samara. From the darkest corners of Chicago, this is the Unenthusiastic Critics Halloween Movie Marathon. Hello everyone and welcome to the Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough, I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and looking at me almost as if she somehow knows exactly what's about to happen, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as the Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. How are you today? I'm okay. On today's episode, Nakia and I are continuing our 2019 Halloween movie marathon with her first viewing of a film that's almost universally recognized as a masterpiece, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now from 1973. But Nakia, before we get to the movie this week, I thought we would take a minute to continue our ongoing project of identifying the source of your pathological aversion to horror. Okay. Last week, we talked about various horror genres that you particularly like or dislike, and I think we accidentally invented a new Myers-Briggs-type personality test mm -hmm. based on horror genres. And we determined that you are a PPK. Yes. You like the paranormal, mm -hmm. you like psychological mm -hmm. horror, and you like killers. Sure. All of which, coincidentally, feature in our film this week. So you should have absolutely no excuse for disliking it. I can always find a reason, but okay. <laughs> but I wanted to delve a little bit today into, into one of those P's, mm -hmm. which is the paranormal. The main character of Don't Look Now is a skeptic. <laughs> he doesn't really believe in anything paranormal. And no spoilers, but that usually comes back to bite people in the ass in horror movies if they're slow to accept what's going on yes. in the movie. Mm -hmm. And that made me think about the fact that you would not be slow to figure out what's going on. Well, I, you, well, you've made the argument that nobody in a horror film knows they're in a horror film, right? And that as a spectator, I tend to think that I would know immediately, but were I in the situation, I would probably be slow to realize that. Right. Mm -hmm. But we have talked before about how, for example, your whole family believes in ghosts yes. and have seen ghosts. Except for me, the bereft, <laughs> soulless <laughs> right. child. Yes. So you say it's it's not that you don't believe in ghosts, right. but that you are somehow ghost blind. I am ghost blind. Okay. Yes. 
I have we talked about my chakra cleanse experience or whatever it was? Uh, no, I don't think I don't think we have. So this was in high school, I think it was. One of my friends had been going to this little storefront run by Wiccans, I guess they were. <laughs> uh, and they would do like, you know, come and get your chakra cleanse or your third eye opened or mm-hmm. whatever the hell. And my friend was getting her, and I want to, it's not a procedure, but her <laughs> services. Um, and then one of the Wiccans came over to me and was like, oh, you have really strong energy. And so she sat me down in a chair and like walked around me in a circle. And she said that I was. Is that is that part of the sales pitch? It's like, oh, you're really strong energy. I think it you probably can, is. You know, because that's how they suck you. And that's it's how like they get you walk you. into a hair cutting place. Exactly. They're like, oh, you have really great bone structure. Yeah. We can do Let's something chop with your this. Hair off. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely I didn't though. I didn't pay for anything in there. Um, <laughs> but so she, yeah, she did like a little sort of circular walk around me. And then she said that I was surrounded by dead people oh god i had the is that a good thing or a bad thing well she said it in a positive light she said that i had the ability to talk to them if i wanted to but i couldn't or wouldn't because i had a a fist in my chest oh a closed fist that doesn't sound good no so i'm apparently too sort of tight to experience the supernatural okay so see this is why i wanted to talk about because yeah. that i think that is not completely far off from what's going on in this movie okay so you have these gifts and i you, have the gift you somehow just don't allow yourself to use yes. them yes apparently i have a stick up my ass and i am not allowing You're myself paranormally retentive i'm paranormally yes exactly yes <laughs> It is, you know. Well, yeah. how do we how do we unclench the fist around your heart? And she did. I probably would have had to pay to figure that, that out. Tap into your powers because uh, I was just like, all right, I'm just going to walk is out. She's still here. there. Can we go back to her? Probably not. Get, do a follow up uh, consultation. But yes. Yeah, so I mean, you know, what you hope for is that we'll have the what was it teen witch experience where you go and you see the woman from Poltergeist and she like gives you powers to be a hot chick at, in high school and that was not what happened to me. I was just told that I. What are you talking about? You've never seen Teen Witch. I never even heard of. Oh my god, it's a fucking classic. (laughs) First of all, it's uh, Blake Lively's older sister. His name I don't remember. I barely know who Blake Lively is. I certainly don't know. Nobody ever wants to be called Blake Lively's older sister, but that unfortunately I can't think of her name. Okay. Uh, But she plays like the quote unquote nerdy girl in high school. She goes, she finds this witch, and the witch is the woman from Poltergeist who's like, this house yeah. is clean. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit, I can't remember that actress's um, name. She's, she was great. And she shows her how to, like, realize her witch powers. And, so and then she becomes a hot chick. She turns herself into the hot chick, and she makes it so that the popular She's guy like a magical makeover sort exactly. of movie. Okay. Yes. I want to be the most popular girl. It's a whole thing. Um, <laughs> and the best part is that her, like, little mousy friend does who's just this, like, tiny Jewish girl, does this, like, rap in the middle of the street with these... They're supposed to be, like, street thug sort of dudes, but, again, they're white and dorky. (laughs) Um, But they're playing their boombox and, like, doing this, like, little rap beef in the middle of the street. What year was this classic? Had to be the 80s. Yeah, it sounds like it. But it really is, like, that's just... that's We have to to fix that, because you need to see it. You know, I swear, every week I try to play in these little conversations and they just, they never end no. up exactly where I think they're going no. to. It's sort of impossible to structure these things. Oh, fuck, I'm trying to remember the rap. I don't really give up about trying to top that. Top that. That's the, the vibe of the rap that they're doing in the street. <laughs> it's the top that rap. Classic. Anyway, I also feel like we're just getting further and further away from the mood. Coming back here. to the point, mm-hmm, yeah, that was not my experience with the Wiccans. Okay, I was just told that I had, you know, I needed some lube. 
uh, some open, spiritual, some, I need some, some spiritual, spiritual lube, lube to open mm-hmm. myself up to the spirits. Okay. <laughs> so this is sort of what I wanted to talk about because I, okay. you believe in that. I guess that's my question. I do. So here's because you know me, I don't believe in no, much of anything. You don't believe in anything. I'm pretty right. You know, very what I can see. Right. And I think I, I that is in science. So I believe in I, so okay, first of all, I don't think it is either or. Either I, or. Okay. Well, sure. I also believe in science, <laughs> okay. but I'm also I feel that it's a little arrogant to assume that we know absolutely everything about I, I mean, everything. I would agree with that, sure. So, I do believe that there are people who can sort of tap into like I mean, the we're it's all energy, right? And so energy goes somewhere and there I do believe that there are spirits or ghosts or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That okay. some people can talk to and some people can see. Okay, so let, that's what I want to talk. So let's kind of try to figure out what what exactly you believe in. Okay, because I think I think this. We affects- believe in nothing, Lebowski. <laughs> I think this affects your experience of watching horror movies. Okay. And I was thinking, like last week, you said that movie was not scary, right? Uh, what, a quiet, quiet place. place. You yes. you weren't scared by that, right? And I think other sort of monster movies we've watched, you did not find scary. Mm-hmm. I think part of that may be that you don't believe in monsters, mm, not non-human ones, but right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that's not something you're expecting to, you know, not no come kill you in your basement. No, if they do, it will be they will be government made, and that, again, that will be <laughs> okay. humanity yeah. being mm, monsters. Right. But yeah, but. You have said before that you you sort of think poltergeist could happen. Sure. That's that's something you could imagine happening. We're all living on indigenous burial grounds, so <laughs> yes. It would only be right for them to fuck our shit up. I, I think you have said that you sort of you sort of think Candyman could could come after you. Sure, why not? Like you would you would be uncomfortable if I went to the mirror and just started saying I don't so here's Candyman's the thing. name. It's not even it's just why invite things? I just don't like even... Even if the odds are very slim. Even if slim. the odds are very slim, why invite evil mm-hmm. into your life? So, no, I would prefer that you didn't. Okay. Uh, so, witches. I, I'm guessing you believe in witches. I do believe that there are... I mean, there are Wiccans. There are, well, there are real, Wiccans, yeah. yes. But I think that's different than witches with magical powers. I mean, yes, I believe in witches. Okay. I like... What was that movie? I don't know. What was that movie? The Four Girls. The craft. Yes. <laughs> I bind you. Nancy. I bind you, Nancy. <laughs> I bind you from doing harm against yourself. Okay. Yes. Uh, psychics. Yes. Okay. And I think there's various kinds of sort of psychic powers. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got mind reading. Mm-hmm. You believe in mind reading? Mm, less so okay. uh, than, than seers. Th- than someone who can see the future. Than someone who can see the future. Someone who can... I think there are people who are deep empaths who they may not be able to read your mind, but I do believe that they have. So they're sort of like in tune. Yes, with, they can on see. The, they can pick yes, up the frequencies yes. that the rest of us yes, cannot. Yes, they have pick a deeper sight than thing. everyone else has. Yes. Okay, I'll buy that. Yes. Sure. Um, what What about getting into like carry sort of telekinesis powers? Sure, why not? <laughs> like we, I, we don't use all of our brain, right? So there could be someone who has tapped into all of the brain and realizes that they can throw kids off of bikes, which I would absolutely. <laughs> you no, know, I know do. you would love to have those powers. Love it. Like if you could unclench your fist and be I know, able to I just use, can't, have carry powers. There's apparently not enough lube in the world. It's been <laughs> closed up. Okay. Uh, what about? And I think we've discussed before. You have a penchant for these sort of occult. Mm-hmm. Movies about, you know, demonology mm-hmm. and twisted Catholicism, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Hell. Yes. Loss of your immortal soul. Yes. 
I mean, I grew up in the church, right? right? So I think part of that predestines you to believe in certain things. I read the Left Behind books oh, at God, a very really? young age. <laughs> so that will always be with me. So yeah, I do believe that there are people who are inherently evil walking the earth. Some of them are in the White House. Devil's Advocate, one of my favorites. Oh, God, that's you know, a bad like, movie. The devil comes that is not as good, Al Pacino not a and tempts movie. you with a really good law, law, law job. So... <laughs> It's a fantastic movie. So, demonic possession. Yes. You would, okay, so if I just told you one day, honey, I think I'm possessed by a demon. Well, I mean, if you said that, I probably wouldn't think that you were possessed by a demon. They don't usually announce themselves in that way. <laughs> um, you would be, you know, threatening to, like, fuck my mother with a crucifix or something. And then, yes, I would say, oh, he's probably possessed by a demon. And then what would happen? Uh, put your ass out. <laughs> You'd no longer be my problem. We, you wouldn't just call an exorcist. No. Get me some help. How does that usually work out? Uh, very well, I does think. It? Yeah. And two, do you want to come back from that? Really? You're saying I could not go on to live a no? I don't think. Happy, I think healthy, that's a fairly traumatic experience, and I don't think anybody comes back right after that. And that our relationship would possibly suffer. Well, we would not have one because we would not. I would not be with someone post demon possession. It's cold. Is it? Yeah. Or is it sort sane? Of un, sort of uncaring. Is it? Mm-hmm. Or I mean, I think in most of those movies, the hero is the person who loves their mm-hmm. their child, their husband, whatever, enough yeah. to fight for them. I don't like you vomiting on me when to you're fight just like the forces of hell suffering to save from them. the flu. So I'm definitely not going to deal with you vomiting <laughs> on me because you're a bitch ass demon. So no, I'm not gonna not gonna put up with that. There's only so much a marriage can take. Like it's nice to know where the line is. I feel like this is a fair line though. Okay, what about uh, aliens? Sure, there could you, be. You believe in aliens? There could be life beyond Earth. Yes. Okay. That we agree on. Yes. Do you believe they're going to come here and fuck shit up? I don't know why they would come. My thing is, like, why would they come here? <laughs> Our shit is fucked. Like, I don't know why they would come here. I would imagine they are intelligent life forms and they can sort of see. So they're just going to sort of scan yeah, what's and be, happening Yeah, and just be like, and be oh, like, hell yeah, no. Was, yeah, no. There's nothing for us to see no, down there. There's no, there's no good that will come from that. Yeah, that makes sense to me, too. See? <laughs> okay, uh, getting further away, I suspect, mm-hmm. sort of. Fairies, leprechauns. No. Okay. Now, boy, that's an it seems to me an arbitrary divided. I don't line. think it is. <laughs> you got ghosts and witches and demons on one side, and then fairies and leprechauns and. Yeah, I can't. No, <laughs> can't do it. Why? Because it's that... just a different mythology. Right, and so maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's because it is not the mythology that I am rooted in. It seems much more fantastical than other things to me. Okay, what else? Um, you're not terribly superstitious, are you? I mean, I guess I'm trying to think if I see you. So I don't court it. Do anything. I try not to court it. I do do the thing where, like, I don't like splitting poles if we're walking together. Okay. I don't do. I didn't even know that one. Yeah, I don't. Like, it's just bad. Like the split poles when you're walking together. I mean, a lot of that seems to me to be just based on common sense. Like, if you walk with a pole between you, there's a good chance one or the other of you is going to whack into a pole. It's It's like the walk under a ladder thing. It's just a bad idea. It's just a bad idea to do. Sure. It's not, you know, some kind of cosmic curse. Mm -hmm. It's that it's a really bad idea if somebody's up on a ladder to walk under the ladder. Yeah. Oh, it's bad luck because bad shit can happen. Yes, gravity can happen. You're such a cynic. Uh, so the salt thing, if I spill salt, I do toss it over my shoulder. Part of it, again, so again... Is that how we get ants? That's, that's how, how we, we get, get ants. ants. Mm-hmm. Is it, part of it, again, is like, I just, I, you know, 
it doesn't hurt anything to just take a little extra step to not fuck yourself. Sure. And it's fun, I guess, well, to believe that the, wor- the world works that way. Sure, I guess. it's. I guess, sure, maybe it is about having this feeling of some control in mm-hmm. the total randomness and chaos of life. Throw a little salt. And then again, some of it's just good advice. You break a mirror, that's, well, yeah, you're it's probably going to st- step on a piece of the mirror yeah. and that's mm-hmm. going to suck. So, yeah. bad luck. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, ooh, reincarnation. Hmm, it's a good one. Do I believe in reincarnation? Are you the reincarnation mm-hmm. of inevitably an African queen? Am I going to be an African queen? Well, you don't have to be an African queen. I'm just saying most people, when they say they're the reincarnation of something, it's, it's something, something awesome. really awesome yeah. that they were. Nobody ever says I was, you know, <laughs> a drunken prostitute who died of syphilis uh-huh. in my previous life. Um, so again, this is where arrogance comes into it. Mm-hmm. There are religions that do believe in reincarnation, and so, I'm sorry, who are you calling arrogant? I'm saying it's arrogant to think that we know all things, or that we. Okay, it sounds like you were accusing me of something. Well, there. you absolutely are arrogant, <laughs> but. So there are religions that believe in reincarnation and they do think in, uh, do believe in sort of past lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is an absolute possibility. I do think that there are times when I experience things that I feel like I've been there before or learned a lesson before or just seem like it was a, a reflection to something that had happened in the past. Okay. So it's possible. So you're you're an old soul. I Well, I mean, I was born for am, it. Am I, am I an old soul? You're an old shoe. I don't know. Jesus. (laughs) But you know, if 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 that is true, then you know the the hope is that you level up with every life. (laughs) So I've pretty much hit my peak, I think. Then you started low. (laughs) You say such nice things about me. See, I have less trouble with reincarnation than I do with you. Don't believe in God. A lot of others. No, so I don't. Do you That's my re- point. Okay. But reincarnation, and here's here's my thing with all of this. Okay. It's not that I think, oh, we understand everything about the way the universe works. Mm-hmm. You know, none of this could be real. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm open to the possibility of ghosts. I'm okay. open to the possibility of, like you said, psychic abilities of some kind. Sure. I'm open to reincarnation. I think it's all just science that we have not figured out yet. Figured out yet, okay. if it ex- if any of it exists. Okay. So reincarnation, sure. I mean, the the nature of the universe is to reuse stuff. Huh. Okay. Right. I mean, nothing it, gets wasted in the universe. It all gets cycled back into production. Doesn't reincarnation demand a soul? Right. But again, I mean, then if, so, if, then if that- there is a soul, then the soul is just something that is some kind of science that we have not identified okay. yet. Okay. Okay. Sure. Interesting. So it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I'm, I'm actually surprised that you believe in that because you don't believe in God. So I wouldn't have thought that you believed. It's, in the more, idea logi- of a- it's more logical to me than God. God is really a stretch to me. But you believe in souls. I believe in, th- I mean, it's a fact that bodies are powered by energy. Mm-hmm. And like you say, that energy has to go somewhere. Okay. Whether it goes somewhere in some way that allows me to remember who I am and stay fundamentally the same person and come back as my dog and save the life of someone down the road. That I don't so much know about. Okay. I mean, I do think I am fundamentally skeptical about a lot of stuff but i also see the attraction to it there's a character in evelyn was brideshead revisited and somebody's asking them whether they believe in god and heaven and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff um sebastian and sebastian says oh yes i believe that that's a lovely idea (laughs) 
And his friend says, well, you can't just believe things because they're a lovely idea. And he says, oh, yes, I can. That's how I believe things. Hmm. Which is not a bad way to go through life. You know, do I believe that there are aliens out there? Yeah, I I like the idea of that. So sure, why not believe it? It doesn't hurt anything to believe it. (laughs) Okay. It's a lovely idea. (laughs) So you don't believe in hell because it's not a lovely idea? Hell? Yes. Stephen, wouldn't it be a lovely idea to think that there's a place where shitty people go and are punished for being shitty? Yes, there is. It's called Washington, D.C. Okay. Okay, anything else? No, that's everything I believe in. That's everything you believe in. (laughs) Those are all of your beliefs. Those are all of my beliefs. (laughs) I believe in that. I believe in good meals, Mm -hmm. people that you don't have to try around, even being a good person, and wearing good clothes while you're being a good person. (laughs) That you really your core belief those right are, there. Those are my core beliefs. Mm-hmm. That is the Tao of Nikia. I think you can go a long way on that. I feel like that's a pretty solid foundation. Mm-hmm. Dana, after all you've seen, after all the evidence, why can't you believe? I'm afraid. I'm afraid to believe. Okay, so once again, we are going to watch Don't Look Now this week. Do you know anything about Don't Look Now? Other than what you just sort of alluded to in the beginning, no. Okay, so you've never heard of this movie? No. All right. I think that's a good thing. I don't think I'm going to tell you much about it. Okay. I think this is a good movie to go into fairly cold. Okay. Do a little background up front just to sort of justify why we're watching it as i said directed by nicholas rogue and i think the only one of his films you've seen i think is an atypical rogue film which is 1990s the witches i love the witches yes that's a classic okay i think that's not his typical thing okay that was sort of a children's movie right yes but it is terrifying (laughs) I, I don't think I've ever seen that, actually. Oh, we definitely have to watch The Witches. So, yeah, I was in college when that came out. I probably Let's just, just do like a witch. We're going to do Teen it. Witch and we're going to do The Witches. Okay. Okay. We'll circle back to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only other movie of his I thought you might have seen, just because I know you are a fan of its star, mm-hmm. is The Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie. I have seen that. Okay. Yes. Bowie's very pretty in it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, Bowie was very pretty. He's very pretty. That's a weird movie. Yes, yeah. it is. Okay. Okay. So that might give you a little more idea what okay. to expect from this one. I'm not sure he ever rose to the level of household name, Nicholas okay. Rogue. Mm-hmm. But as David Thompson wrote in Rogue's obituary last year on the BFI's website, Rogue was, up until his death, defiantly regarded by many as Britain's finest living director. And Thompson says, not that Rogue's films ever seemed calculated to score highly at the box office or ingratiate themselves with audiences. His achievement was more in the nature of provocation and exploration, looking into the darkest recesses of human behavior, and never taking any easy route through narrative cinema. His particular obsession with playing with time and editing through association of imagery rather than classic mise-en-scene gave rise to the much-used critical term, Rogian. His films got under your skin, made you feel emotions you might prefer to block out, carried you into a dream state where you saw the world in a different and challenging way. Hmm. So that's what you have to look forward to this week. 
Sounds interesting, at least. <laughs> Rogue actually started out as a cinematographer. He worked with Truffaut on Fahrenheit 451. He worked with Schlesinger on Far From the Madding Crowd. And he worked with David Lean. He was the second unit cinematographer on Lawrence of Arabia, which we watched. And he was hired to be the cinematographer for Dr. Zhivago and shot a lot of that movie, which won an Oscar for the cinematography. But he himself was fired off of Dr. Zhivago, uh, so wasn't credited for it. Don't Look Now is his... Most celebrated and universally acclaimed film, it'll turn up on just about every list of the greatest horror movies ever made. The Guardian named it the third best horror film of all time, after Psycho and Rosemary's Baby. And it actually turns up on a lot of lists of the greatest films of all time, full stop. Both the BFI and Time Out have named it one of the ten greatest British films of all time. And in fact, last year, Time Out conducted a poll of 150 movie critics and experts, and the result was that they named Don't Look Now the greatest British film of all time. It's based on a short story by the great British writer Daphne du Maurier, who also wrote the short story upon which Hitchcock's The Birds was based, and the novel Rebecca, which Hitchcock also filmed. That's a favorite of mine. We should definitely watch that one of these days. Mm -hmm. I don't, I honestly don't know what you're going to make of this one. It might bore you. Okay. You might think it's gorgeous. You might think it's really interesting. I honestly have no idea. All right. I think Rogue is a director that other directors admire mm -hmm. and cite as influences. I think he's that kind of filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Steven Soderbergh has admitted that he shamelessly ripped off the sex scene from Don't Look Now when he made Out of Sight, mm. the Clooney Yes, film. one of my favorite Jennifer um, Lopez films. Edgar Wright has called Don't Look Now a masterpiece, as it's in his top ten of all time, and calls it the best edited movie of all time. David Cronenberg, something of an authority on Creepy horror, shit. Mm -hmm. has called it the scariest film he's ever seen. Oh, okay. <laughs> now that probably will put you in the wrong state of mind, because I don't think it's scary in... Twin gynecologists? <laughs> in that way? In the Cronenbergian way? Yes. No, I don't think it's scary that way. <laughs> Uh, I think it's atmosphere, mood. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's jump scare scary. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Again, we'll we'll see what you think. I will tell you if this gives you some idea of what to expect with it. Okay. Uh, when it was first released in the UK in 1973, it was part of a double bill with The Wicker Man. Oh, Jesus. All right. <laughs> I would give a lot <laughs> to have been able to see Don't Look Now and The Wicker Man back to back in a movie theater, having no idea what to expect from either of them. I feel like that would have fundamentally changed my view of the world to walk into a movie theater, see those two movies back to back without having any warning what either of them was about. I feel like that would have just fundamentally altered my soul. For the bad. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> different, yeah, definitely. The you Wicker would, Man you would come out of that different. No. Yeah, not a good movie. You sort of liked The Wicker Man. Did I? You did. Okay. That was one we did on the blog. People mm -hmm. can go read that post. You found that movie unnerving in the right <laughs> way, I think. <laughs> yeah. And that's another movie that's not necessarily scary. No, it's just, it's But odd. it's unnerving. It's, it's just a... Yeah, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like I said, I don't, I don't know that there's a lot more we need to talk about up front. I think we should just go watch the movie and talk about it afterwards. All right. Okay. They say seeing is believing, but only a split second of time separates the past from the future. The present is crushed between them. A thin thread of life in a skein of death.
you looking at? I don't know what's happening. You are warned. Things are not what they seem. Don't look now. What is it, Mr. Baxter? What is it you fear? Find him. You must find him. You must find him. It was a warning. It was Christine. She was trying to warn us. Your life is in danger while you're in Venice. What is it you fear? Christine is dead. She is dead. <laughs> Did she die suddenly? Oh. No, no. John, I wish you'd believe me. <laughs> what did she say? What did she say? She is dead. You must find her. Dead, 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 dead. You are warned. Things are not what they seem. Don't look now. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Don't Look Now. Nikki, I first saw this movie at what we can generously call an inappropriate age. <laughs> Uh, I distinctly remember watching this alone late at night at my grandmother's house. My grandmother had cable. We did not have cable, so it was always exciting to go to her house and watch the cable channels. And I came across this alone late at night and watched it. I don't even remember if I watched the whole thing, but I definitely saw the ending and it traumatized me. And this was, I mean, this is a side note, but I think there's an experience that my generation was the last to have because we were the last pre-internet generation. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what this movie was. I may not have even known the title. I couldn't look it up online and find out what it was about. I just remember that ending. I remember describing that ending to my friends. Like I watched some movie and then there's this red thing at the end. It haunted me for years, probably, until I actually found out what this movie was, you know? Mm -hmm. You probably didn't have the same experience this time with it. But let me maybe start by asking you, let's question the premise here. Is this a horror movie? Did you react to it as a horror movie? Um, I think so. I think it is a type of horror movie in the sense that it is sort of referring back to that horror film genre breakdown chart that we referenced. Right. I think that was the last episode. Uh, yeah. On the yeah, Quiet Place Quiet episode, Place. we talked about that. Um, it might be a PPK, uh, which is <laughs> paranormal, psychological, psychological and killer. killer. Mm -hmm. so I, I think promise you this was all three. This is all three. So I do think that it qualifies as a horror. I think aside from the ending, mm -hmm. it's a less traditional sort of horror film. Right. That's what I was wondering is if, if you take that ending off, right. would it still end up on all the horror movie lists? I mean, that's that's an interesting question. It, I think the ending is probably what does sort of solidify it as a horror versus sort of a psychological thriller. Mm -hmm. But I do think that over time, we've probably just expanded our thinking around what a horror film can be. Because even if you take off that ending, you could make the argument that this is a horror film and it's, it's an exploration of how horror manifests out of grief. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, I think, and I think that's one of the reasons it ends up on lists of, just the greatest movies mm -hmm. having nothing to do with the horror genre. I do think it's a it's a tremendous exploration of marriage, mm -hmm. and I think it's a tremendous exploration of grief. So what? how did you react to this? What did you think of this overall? I enjoyed it. I'm still not sure whether or not I like the ending. Okay. 
the ending seemed a little atonal to me mm-hmm. um, and almost, I don't want to say cheapened the rest of the film, mm. but it, yeah, I was, I think I'm, I'm still not quite sure where I fall with the ending. Okay. Um, but otherwise I thought it was, I thought it was beautifully filmed and difficult and challenging in, in, in terms of what we expect from sort of traditional narrative storytelling. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, that ending, I'm still not, I'm not okay. sure. Well, we will, we will <laughs> definitely talk about the ending. I will tell you, Donald Sutherland mm-hmm. agreed with you, at least at first. Okay. And Donald Sutherland loved Rogue. He said this making this movie was the greatest experience of his life. Mm-hmm. He actually named his son Rogue. Oh, wow. He has a son named Rogue Sutherland, named after this director. But he has said that he challenged Nicholas Rogue on the ending. He said, I don't think, mm-hmm. you know, I don't like the ending. I don't think that's how it should end. And Rogue said, do you want to make this movie or not? <laughs> <laughs> fair. <laughs> Which I love. <laughs> totally fair. So. Okay, but we will get to that. Okay, so let's start instead with the opening, which to me is one of the greatest openings mm-hmm. of any film ever made. Mm-hmm. I think the movie that was, as I said, the B-side of this double feature release in 1973, The Wicker Man, mm-hmm. is often referred to as the Citizen Kane of horror movies. Oh, Lord. As much as I love The Wicker Man, I think this movie, just in terms of looking at the editing, looking at how every frame is used, I think this movie has a better claim to that. And it starts with the opening, which is sort of this overture for the entire movie mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely sort of throwing the audience off its square from moment one, because we do open on this sort of bucolic scene of two little children, one little girl in her very cute little red raincoat. Mm-hmm. That and won't be important. Not at all. Um, and then the only color in the entire scene. Um, <laughs> and then her little brother who's sort of riding his bike around. And what should be a very sort of innocent and calming scene you know that it isn't partially because of the score that's playing over. It's sort of this weird sort of almost like a children singing some sort of nursery rhymey sort of thing. But it's, yeah, it's it sounds like a child yeah, picking out a tune it, on right, the piano. Yeah, mm-hmm. But it's so so but it's discordant. And so, yeah. you know, that this is not things aren't quite right. Or, you know, you're expecting that something tragic is sort of going to happen. Also because we see this little girl playing around open water, which is just... (laughs) (laughs) Never bodes well. Poor parenting. Um, So, but it cuts back and forth between the children outside and Julie Christie, who plays Laura Baxter, and Donald Sutherland, who plays John Baxter, their parents, indoors, having what seems to be a very sort of lazy, beautiful Sunday. Mm -hmm. You know, she's reading and ruminating on a question that her daughter asked her about a really sort of philosophical question that would to come from this little girl about you know if the world is round why are iced over lakes flat right why is a frozen pond flat um and john is busy sort of looking at slides from churches in what we've realized will be venice and it's sort of cutting back and forth between the two scenes and they're almost sort of echoing each other and speaking to each other there's a moment when christine she's throwing her ball in the lake again, or in the pond, I guess mm-hmm. it is, playing around open water. So she's there's a scene where she's throwing her ball in the pond, and that f- quick cuts to a scene of John throwing a pack of cigarettes to Laura. Yeah. And we go back to the kids, and we see their son, John. He's riding his bike, and he rides his bike over, like, a plane of glass. Yeah. And there's a cut back to the parents, and John sort of looks up as if he has heard it but then goes back to his work. But the the sort of really powerful moment in that scene is as John is looking at slides from one of his churches, it's this beautiful cathedral, stained, cathedral with stained glass. And in the pews, 
there's a little what looks to be a little girl sitting in one of the pews with a red raincoat with a hood sort of turned up. And we don't know if that's Christine or if that's someone else in that photo. Right. But he spills water on mm-hmm. the slide and the red from the raincoat just sort of bleeds across the entire slide and it's really beautiful mm-hmm. and obviously ominous because at that moment he hears or he at least sees in his mind that something terrible has happened to Christine. Right. And so he runs out of the house, sees that she has drowned in the pond. I think I think even before that, we get the sense that he senses mm-hmm. something is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, later in the movie, that's important because it's he was having some sort of premonition that he was ignoring mm-hmm. in that scene. He had at least a bad feeling yeah. that he was ignoring as he as he continued his work. Yeah, so he runs out, sees that Christina's drowned, pulls her out of the pond and starts to try to administer um, CPR. And, you know, it's it's obviously not working and it's clear that she is, she's died. And he releases what is a very just animalistic sort of guttural yes. yell um, as he's sort of holding her in his arms and f- sort of falling to the ground. The drama ramps up to this operatic yeah. level instantly. Mm-hmm. It's the that tinkling piano soundtrack is gone. Now it's like booming cello mm-hmm. music and it goes into slow-mo and he comes out of the pond with her just like you said with just releasing this primal mm-hmm. moan. And you talked about the red throughout the scene and the, the entire movie, the palette is very much earth. Yeah. Except Earth for the tones, yeah. except for these bright reds. So we have her raincoat, the ball mm-hmm. is red, the stain on the slide is red. In that scene, the brother has picked up a piece of the broken glass and, and cut, cut himself. himself. So he's bleeding. So he's mm-hmm. bleeding, and it's all, you know, cut together. When the wife realizes something has happened and she runs out, there's these red roses behind mm-hmm. her as she comes out and screams. It's just, the scene is amazing. The editing is amazing in it. The way all of these images are sliced together. And it is, it does really work to sort of tell you the entire movie mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. That everything is there. This is a great movie to watch three, four, or five, six times because you every time you watch it, you pick up more stuff that, you know, these little references that go back and forth between past and present. I liked this quote. This is Nigel Andrews writing in the Financial Times. He says, The strengths of cinema as an art, agility with time, the trumploid deceptions underlying apparent reality, are used to make us doubt our senses, just as the story central couple do theirs. And I thought that was a good observation, because it's one of the things that makes this movie so great is Rogue is doing the stuff that you can only do in film, Mm -hmm. and doing it in a very smart, thematic way, so that the whole movie is sort of about time, the fluidity of time, time referencing back on itself, Mm -hmm. past, present, and future all sort of happening simultaneously. That's something film can do with the editing you know the the references forward to the church in florence and backwards like it's it's just kind of amazing that way and then we cut forward to an unspecified time in the future and we're in venice shot i think as venice has never been shot before and will probably never be shot (laughs) again it's almost not beautiful this city in decay Mm -hmm. very atmospheric very appropriate to the sense of grief that is haunting this couple talk to me about the couple john and laura They are, you know, as you talk about this idea of past, present, and future happening all at the same time and and all of time is sort of folding in on itself and and referencing back to itself and sort of the ripple effects, you know, we don't know, we don't have a strong idea as an audience of who John and Laura were as a married couple before Christine's death. Right, except for that one scene we saw at the beginning. Except for the one scene at the beginning where they seem, you know, fairly playful and, Mm -hmm. and in love. But the time that we spend with them the most is this is a, you know, a married couple grieving the death of their child and they are grieving it very differently 
and they are sad. And, you know, John has sort of chosen to bury himself in work, Mm -hmm. and we find out through various sort of clues, some more uh, implicit and others more explicit, that Laura has been struggling mentally and emotionally in the sort of aftermath of Christine's death. And that's almost become sort of a burden to John and that we need to make sure that we're taking care of Laura. Right, that Laura's stable right. and Laura's okay. I, I really like how that's, all of that is, it's so strong, it's so powerful, but it's not overdone. No, no. I think it's easy to imagine a different version of this, particularly like an American version of this story, where they would be having explicit conversations mm-hmm. about the death of their daughter and how hard it was to get over that, and where Laura would be, you know, visibly depressed yeah, and crying and having case, a nervous yeah. breakdown. Mm-hmm. And not they're they're acting very normal, yeah. they're smiling, they're having normal conversations. That grief is just there as the subtext mm-hmm. to everything that, that happens between them. Mm-hmm. But nobody brings it up until the blind lady brings it up. Yeah, so they're they're sitting in a restaurant and they there's this these two sisters mm-hmm. who are sitting there. Mm-hmm. And actually John and this is something that will come out throughout the movie, John sets the story in motion by it's it's cold in there and he tries to close the window and another window blows open and it ends up blowing something into this woman's eye and they're stumbling to the bathroom to try to get the thing out of her eye and Laura goes to help them. That's what sets the story in motion. Mm-hmm. So it's, it was John's actions that set the story in motion. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, supporting this whole kind of fate inevitability sense that we have of this. Yeah, so Laura just has a really interesting sort of encounter with these women in the bathroom, the start of a fun night out. But one of the sisters is blind, but is a seer. And she tells Laura that she has seen Christine, that Christine is sort of sitting at the table with them. And, you know, not to worry and don't be sad because Christine is very happy and she loves them. And, you know, obviously Laura, who has whose grief has been a little bit more towards the surface than John's, sort of immediately falls apart at that news and is just really sort of elated to hear um, that her her daughter is present and is looking to sort of continue the connection with this woman so that she can hear more um, about Christine Mm -hmm. and how Christine is doing. And Laura goes back to John and sort of passes out, sort Mm -hmm. of overwhelmed. She Mm -hmm. she faints at the table. And then... We, we catch up with them in the hospital. She's in the hospital, which appears to be a children's hospital yeah. because everybody else in the ward is a child, is, is children, mm-hmm. including a little boy who's throwing a ball. That Very much exactly like, like the one Christine mm-hmm. had, stuff like that. But when she wakes up in the hospital, she is as happy as she mm-hmm. has ever been, mm-hmm. apparently. She's so elated. She's so relieved. And she tells John, you know, oh, Christine is with us. And he gets almost instantly furious. Yeah. He's like, Christine is dead. Yeah. Instantly just trying to shut that down. Do you and this is something I wondered about. Do you think there's a there's a kind of male female thing going on in this movie about, you know, men are rational, mm-hmm. women are more emotional slash more spiritual kind of thing? I mean, I think that's definitely how they're setting that this film has sort of been set up. Most, if not all, of the male characters that we encounter, even the uh, the bishop, even the bishop, right, are I guess we could sure they're rational, uh, or or see themselves as the more sort of intellectual, even tempered counterparts to mm-hmm. the women who are more emotional, more susceptible to being duped, I guess, mm-hmm. by what John believes are just sort of two con artists. Right. But yes, but they also have this deeper sort of intuition and connection to a world that men have sort of shut themselves off from. So I definitely think that that is there. And I think I think the setting contributes to that, too. I mm-hmm. mean, they're just on the basic symbolic level of water as a symbol of the feminine and water as a symbol of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. It's like entering this world where everything is water. And mm-hmm. John is the one who's out of his element in this 
in this world. Mm -hmm. And I also think it shows up just in, there's this great scene where um, I think it's right after John and Laura encounter the two sisters at the restaurant. Um, Laura wants to go to a church. Yes. And John is just really not super interested in doing that. And she picks a church that he doesn't think is particularly beautiful or aesthetically Mm -hmm. pleasing, which is interesting because it's like, he's not necessarily interested in the churches for their, for the spirituality of it or for, for, any sort of religiosity, he's much more interested in the aesthetics. Right. Um, he's an architect. He restores architect, old right. churches. Restores That's old what churches. he's doing in Venice. And it's just it's just a problem to right. him. It's just a, an object to him. But he indulges, and they go to this church, and Laura says that she's going to light candles for Christine. And mm-hmm. so she does that. And John just sort of drifts off and is looking at the light fixtures in mm-hmm. the church. And again, looking at it with a very sort of an, an architectural eye versus sort of sharing that moment of connection with his wife. But again, he sees one of the sisters in the church and just sort of catches a glimpse of her but then sort of tries to to follow her secretly around mm-hmm. to see what she's doing but is sort of interrupted because Laura pulls him away but I think it gets to this like how these two characters as individual characters but also as you know how is the man showing up in this moment and how how are these how are the women showing up in this right. moment is a, is a we get a little of that later too when they they meet up with the bishop and laura kisses his ring mm-hmm. and john says you know what on earth possessed you to do that mm-hmm. she's obviously not catholic right. or anything but she she again it's just that relating to spirituality and religion in completely different ways here yeah and moving in different directions as they deal with their grief which mm-hmm. as you said he is not dealing with and she is all of a sudden Mm -hmm. she wants to talk about christine i think a little later is when she first meets up with the sisters again and the sisters ask her about christine Mm -hmm. like how did she die and i think the other sister tries to shut it down like you know oh don't ask her that yeah and Laura says, no, no, I want to talk about it. And she says it like she's surprised to find out that she does want to talk about it. But it's all all coming out in a more healthy way Mm -hmm. now for her. And John never talks about it. Right, right. But going back to this idea of like who they were, before the death of Christine, we get, I think, one of the sort of, in addition to the opening, another scene that's just beautifully shot and edited, which is they're back at their hotel in Italy and just talking on the hotel for a second, as we, you know, you mentioned this depiction of a Venice that is in decay, mm-hmm. um, a Venice that's almost emptied out of people. Right. It's the end of the season. It's the end of, end of the season. And so they're staying in this hotel that is ready to close for the season and sort of impatiently waiting <laughs> for the Baxters <laughs> to sort of finish up what they're doing. And so this, w- which could be a really beautiful hotel, looks haunted with ghosts almost yeah. because all of the furniture is sort of covered in sheets mm-hmm. and they're you know, packing things up to for the season, as you said, but um, this idea that even the place within which they're, sta- they're staying is sort of dying in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they go back to their hotel room and we get this really beautiful scene of the two of them making love for what appears to be the first time in a long we time. We assume it is. Yeah. Probably the first time since Christine right. died. Just because of the passion of it and almost this like fumbling to find each other again mm-hmm. um, and have that share that experience that that sort of intimacy again but it's edited with shots of them then getting dressed to go out for the evening yep. so it is this both taking off of clothes and nudity and nakedness of both body and sort of emotion and then juxtaposed with these scenes of them putting clothes back on and sort of reassuming these roles mm-hmm. um, and separating again like that was this moment where they were really close and intimate and then from that point on they will be going in in different directions. 
Yeah, this scene, I mean, I think this scene and the ending are the two most famous scenes in this movie. The sex scene was incredibly explicit for the time and somewhat controversial, a little shocking. A lot of legends have grown up around this scene. There has been a persistent rumor that it was unsimulated, which both the stars have denied. Mm -hmm. But some, some producer or something wrote a book in which he claimed that it was an unsimulated sex scene between Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. Warren Beatty, who was dating Julie Christie at the time, apparently thought so or thought enough that he was, you know, unhappy with that, unhappy (laughs) with with this scene. And the editing is brilliant. Mm -hmm. I mean, it works on so many levels, some of them strictly practical. Because without that editing, this scene would not have gotten past the censors. Mm -hmm. The American ratings board in particular, Rogue said, they were concerned with the amount of thrusting (laughs) in a sex scene. The amount of humping. To the extent where they would sit there and be like, okay, you've got... Two humps left. Right. Or, you know, oh, there's three seconds of humping. You need to cut down that amount of humping. Uh Like, it's the in and out motion of a sex scene that they were concerned with. So what Rogue did was cut away. There, There is virtually no humping mm. in this scene mm-hmm. because, you know, where there would be a thrust, Rogue <laughs> cuts away. Ridiculous. It's kind of brilliant. But then, yeah, just that, what we were talking about before, that thing with time, you know, past, present, and future, all sort of overlapping and being non-linear. So we get before, during, and after mm-hmm. kind of happening simultaneously here. I think it has the effect of sort of normalizing the sex because we see it as just sort of part of a marriage, a marriage. Mm -hmm. I think it sort of has the effect of the opposite of sort of eroticizing the getting dressed and that part Mm -hmm. of it because it's intercut with the explicit sex scene. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I like this quote, Peter, this is Peter Bradshaw on the guardian. He says, sex scenes in the movies are generally between people who are having sex for the first time. Laura and John are having married sex. They've had sex many times before this, although this is surely the first time since the death of their child, so the sex is a kind of redemptive miracle, a scene that is moving in its frankness and intimacy. Sutherland and Christie are an overwhelmingly convincing married couple, despite being apart for much of the film. And I think that's true. I think if you take that scene out, I think we don't have the same sense of their history together. I think Mm -hmm. we're not as invested in their relationship without this scene. I do think that intimacy that they are trying to reach there, do reach there goes a long way towards making us invest in their relationship and making it feel like they have had this long relationship. Was it hot? <laughs> it was hot. <laughs> um, I think it was real. Okay. Yeah. Got a little thing for Donald Sutherland now? No. <laughs> I, I suspected not. I, I do not. And that's not even a ding on Donald I just I don't have a thing for Donald Sutherland. <laughs> not really your type? Not really my type. <laughs> Now, Julie Christie. But. Hey, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> I just went to a happy place. <laughs> okay, where are we here? So they are going for a night out, and this is um, one of the f- the more sort of Venice is a horror show. Oh yes, scenes because they're going. It's it's night, and so it's dark out, and they are trying to find their way to some gathering. Yeah, and this is again just the setting is brilliant because mm-hmm. Venice is. I've only been there once, and it, I was there during the busy season, and it was insanely crowded, mm-hmm. so it was not the same feeling. But still, it is almost impossible not to get lost in Venice. Yeah. like it is such a labyrinth. Mm-hmm. And that, this is the scene you're talking about here. 
Yeah, so it's, it, you know, it's dark and they are weaving in and out of, as you said, this labyrinth. You know, coming to these dead ends where, you know, you meet the canal um, and there's one moment where they come to the canal and there are these sort of rats. Mm-hmm. And John has this moment of sort of deja vu where yeah. he says, I sort of, I feel like I've been here before. Right, do I know this place? Right. And then there are moments when he and, and Laura sort of go off in separate directions and are talking to each other across the canal, mm-hmm. trying to sort of find each other and find this destination that they're supposed to get Which, to. Which, again, metaphor! Yes. And in all of this, he sees a figure in a red raincoat, or red coat, mm-hmm. uh, run through. Yeah, a small um, figure in a red hooded coat. But he and Laura eventually reconnect, and then they find a busy street with people. And it, it really is like literally around the corner, all this life. And, and, and stuff was happening and mm-hmm. they were just sort of lost yeah. in their own little world of darkness and solitude. But it is Venice at its most scariest. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do, we hear a scream during that scene. Mm-hmm. And have we have we found out yet about the murders or has that come later? I don't remember. We know that there have been murders. Okay. Yes. The, the murder story is this kind of thing that just sort of happens it's, in the background yeah. throughout this movie for mm-hmm. most of the movie. I think we're on a gondola going down the canal, and we see police up in a balcony mm-hmm. dusting for fingerprints. Mm-hmm. Um, and then much later in the movie, we see them pulling a body out of the canal. So, yeah. Death is always present. Yes. In this mm-hmm. But in the interim, you know, Laura has gone back to talk to the sisters because she's in sort of desperate need to stay in connection with Christine. And the sisters have told her that John's life is in danger as long as he stays in Venice. Mm -hmm. And he is obviously not heeding that warning and brushes it off again as just two con artists trying to say whatever, like they say anything. Um, And they say John has the gift. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't know it and he's resisting it right which you know we've sort of gotten hints of that already mm-hmm. i mean i think that's ultimately what the movie is about and i think it again it's one of those things that works on several levels it's just about that thing we were talking about before about men just being rational mm-hmm. and just and resisting intuition and resisting spirituality and all of that mm-hmm. yeah i mean he he and laura are, are getting further and further apart at this point he's resisting what the sisters are telling her he's almost gaslighting her a little bit he's mm-hmm. like if you're taking your pills that kind of thing and when she goes to visit the sisters, he refuses to go with her. He doesn't want anything to do with it. But then he follows her mm-hmm. and spies on them through the keyhole of the in the hotel, which is one of those moments, again, like, like his opening the, the door at the beginning of the movie. It kind of sets other stuff in motion that seems like fate to a certain extent because... The sister's neighbors in the hotel catch him peeking through the door. Right. While the blind sister is having a vision, it sounds like sex, basically. And in fact, she's kind of like groping herself (laughs) as she has this vision. Um, But the noises coming through the door sound like sex. It looks like he's a peeping Tom peeping through the door. The neighbors see that and chase him off. Later in the movie, he can't find the sisters because the sisters have moved hotels. And they say, we moved because there were prowlers in our old hotel. He was the prowler. Right, right. So again, it's just sort of all these pieces falling into place based on his actions. And then, yeah, he's ignoring the message. His life is in danger. And he gets a fairly direct 
sign of that as he's working in the church. Yes. So he is back at the church working on the restoration. Uh, The bishop has brought him these sort of special tiles so that he can complete this mosaic. Mm -hmm. Um, And he sort of crawls up the scaffolding and... You know, he's taking the tile and, and, you know, putting the tile up against the mosaic and studying. And, and the entire time, I think the, the audience knows that that shit's going to come down because it's just, <laughs> it's rickety as shit. Yeah. Um, but then again here, Rogue utilizes some some brilliant editing in that there we see a shot of a wooden beam falling down. Yeah, it's amazing. Towards John on the scaffolding. But then the next shot, we're back in John's perspective. And there, you know, that is nowhere in sight. Um, and then it just co- sort of comes crashing down on him. It's, and we should mention the editor's name is Graham Clifford, and he's fantastic, the work he does here. But that cut is so, because it's just almost long enough mm-hmm. that you're not sure you saw that beam falling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a half a second longer than you expect it to be, and then that beam comes crashing down towards him. Yeah. Um, He's almost forgotten that it's coming. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And crashes through a, a pane of glass, yeah. bringing that motif back. Right. And almost kills him. Yeah. And this was a scene that Donald Sutherland, it's very obvious from the film, did his own stunt there. Mm. He did it because the stunt man, his stunt double, refused to do it. That's ballsy. Because the stunt double looked at it and said, this setup is not safe. The way you guys have this set up, I am not doing this. I'm going to fall to my death. Good for you. To the marble floor. And they had the church for one day. They, you know, that Rogue was like, what the fuck are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And Donald Sutherland said, I'll do it. And he said, you know, they had a, he wasn't really hanging freely because he was attached by a line Mm -hmm. that went up his arm. But he said he talked to people later, stunt people later, and they said, what kind of line? And he told them, he's like, that's not, like, you're lucky you're not dead. (laughs) This is why we got to use Because the way he was spinning is Mm -hmm. like that, that line should have snapped and you should have fallen to your death to the marble floor Mm -hmm. below. So it's a very effective scene because it's very convincing that he's in danger. But yeah, for the character, that should have been a warning. Right. You know, you need to pay attention to this shit. I don't know how you can get more of a literal thunderbolt from God telling you things than he gets there. Immediately after that, he goes for a walk with the bishop to Mm -hmm. sort of collect himself. And they come to the canals. And again, the police are pulling a body. This time, an adult woman um, who could very easily be Laura or, you know, Mm -hmm. someone out of the canal. And he has a flashback to to Christine in that scene. Yes. And he, I think he does say something like, we should, we should go or I don't, we shouldn't be here Mm -hmm. um, because it's very clearly upsetting to him. But it's clear that he... That feeling of just sort of, uh, again, impending doom or death is there with him. Mm-hmm. Oh, and okay, so we've, we've, we skipped over part here. We skipped okay. over, Laura has left at this point. Yes. Because they got a phone call from their son's school. He had an accident. He had an accident. Mm-hmm. Laura left to go back and be with him. Mm-hmm. So John, believing himself to be alone in Venice. In Venice yes. Uh, right after the scene you were just talking about, a barge passes on the canal on which Laura and the two sisters are standing. Mm-hmm. And he, what the hell is Laura doing here? She's supposed to be back in, back in England. Right. And so he goes back to the hotel and he says, hey, has he checked out of the hotel? Yeah, the hotel's closed. Right, the hotel is closed. Yes. Right. So he goes back and says, hey, have you seen my wife? And the manager, like you said, just wants to be done for the mm-hmm. season. He's like, no, you know, senor, we're closed. Get the fuck out of here. I haven't seen your wife. He goes to the police. The police listen to him. They do like a sketch of the, the sister, mm-hmm. the blind sister. 
The police don't seem particularly interested. Uh, the guy playing the police officer spoke no English, and he was just doing his lines like phonetic, phonetically. Yeah. He didn't really know what he was saying, which I think contributes to that it's an disconnect. Odd, it's a really odd interaction. Yeah. Um, and that's interesting because it, it maybe adds something to the scene that wasn't necessarily meant to be there mm-hmm. um, because he seems to be both mocking John in a way of just like in di- a little bit in disbelief of just like, what is this? And But also invested in something that we aren't clear on because if you see the drawings that he's he's doing the sketches sort of in real time as John is talking to him but one of the sketches gets very demonic mm-hmm. um, in the way that he's drawing it's just very it, like it becomes inhuman mm-hmm. um, the thing that he's drawing but it's it's clear that he seems to be making some reference to something else and so I think what we realize as an audience is he's thinking okay well maybe these are the people that are responsible for all the murders that have been right, happening exactly but the the exchange between them is just very odd. Yeah, um, it's very, and, and very disconnected. Yeah. You just feel like, yeah. Um, and he does actually set somebody to follow yes. John, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He sends a, sends a policeman to follow John. Because he basically tells John to try to go back and find the place where the sisters lived. Right. Um, and so John does. And as you said, the police have someone follow him. And on the way, he sees this, this doll on the edge oh, of yes. the canal. And so again, we get this moment of, a child. That's one of the water. less subtle it's symbols. It's very in the nice. Movie. And like he turns the doll over and it's waterlogged water and it's just all coming out. So it's I actually could have done without that one. Yeah. I felt like that was a step. It was too a little far. on the nose. Yeah. yeah. But they, he finds out that the sisters have moved, as you said, because there was a peeping Tom. But they, the police do find them in their new place and they have been arrested. Mm-hmm. But in the interim, John calls their son's school to see if Laura ever made it there. And it turns out that Laura was there and is there and he talks to her on the phone and he's very much like where are you are and she's like of course i'm in london just like i said we right it's just what's what's the problem and so he realizes that he's and made he says but i saw yeah, you i saw you yeah so yeah the two sis- the sisters have been arrested after he finds out laura is alive and well and <laughs> in england he gets the sisters out of jail he's escorting the blind sister home mm-hmm. And he, I guess he takes her back to her new hotel. The other sister's there. He leaves them there. And then as he's leaving, the blind sister, Heather, starts having one of her visions. Mm -hmm. And she says, get him back, fetch him back, don't let him go. And he's going off and he sees the figure in red again. Which he has seen a couple times throughout the movie. We've Mm -hmm. gotten glimpses of them. But he starts following this figure in red through the dark and incredibly spooky (laughs) streets of Venice. Yeah. Laura makes her way back and goes to find the sisters and they say that, you know, John has just left and reiterate, you know, we told you to get your ass out of Venice. Um, And so she runs off to find John and so it's the two of them sort of. He's 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 chasing chasing the figure, figure she's chasing him. She's chasing, Laura's chasing John. And again, we have this sort of ramping up of mm-hmm. the, the cinematic drama here. The The music comes up. We get this fog mm-hmm. that comes up. It starts to get much more horror movie yes. at the end yes. here in this in this final sequence. That figure just keeps darting around corners just out of sight mm-hmm. of him. Um, it's, a, it's a fantastic sequence. And then he sort of corners her, the, the figure in red, in this alleyway. He shuts the gates behind mm-hmm. him as though to keep her in there. Mm-hmm. And there's this great moment because... So Laura's only just a couple steps behind him, but just enough delay that she can't quite catch up. Yeah. And so when he closes the gates, she gets to the gate and is sort of reaching her arms through the bars and she yells something like, stop my darlings or come yes. back my darlings or something like that. So it's, she's talking to both John and Christine. Yes. Um, and so you get this 
it becomes John is chasing not this random figure in red. John is chasing Christine, and John is chasing Christine into death, really. And yeah. I think it's Laura that realizes that um, she's she's losing John in this moment because he's chasing Christine, mm. and it will be to his death. So what do you think he thinks at this point? Does he think it's Christine? I think he He doesn't say that. No, I think he needs to prove that it's not Christine. I think his rational mind is saying, I need to see who it is to prove that it's not Christine. Because he says, I'm a friend, I won't hurt Mm -hmm. you. But he says it like he's talking to a stranger, a strange child. Mm -hmm. He doesn't call out his daughter's name he doesn't indicate no i do think he he sees it as a moment of redemption of like i couldn't save my own child so maybe i can save this one right but his rational mind Mm -hmm. is still not Mm -hmm. not willing to to make the connection right right. yeah i I think that's right and uh then the figure turns around yeah (laughs) (laughs) this is where they lose me a little bit oh no i just can't One of the most memorable sequences in all of cinema. It is absolutely memorable. I will not argue that point. It is absolutely (laughs) memorable. But the figure turns around and it is like a dwarf witch. Demonic dwarf witch. And I... I, All of a sudden I'm like in Leprechaun. And I'm just... Oh no. I don't... I can't... It's just it's odd. It's so creepy. So some dwarf witch has been running around it's Venice. so unexpected. Murdering people. I just don't... I don't understand. It's odd. Um, but, yeah, so she basically, like, machetes him in the neck. <laughs> and he just bleeds out. And as he's bleeding out, it's there are, you know, moments from his life flashing before yeah, his eyes. Past, and president, past future, president, future. Past president, future, I guess. In, well, no, there's no future. Um, all sort of coming in yeah. at this moment. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. Did, I, I guess, I mean, I don't know. Were you expecting it? I mean, it obviously wasn't Christine. We knew it wasn't Christine. Okay, so what were you expecting? I don't know I'm what curious. the hell I was expecting. I, I really don't. I was not expecting a dwarf witch. <laughs> um, that's a good, I don't know what I was expecting. I was not expecting that. And then when it was that, I was like, really? Is this what we're going to do? I almost wish the bishop had been imaginary, like that he had just been hallucinating or something the whole time. I don't know. Like he had hallucinated, chased her into the church, and then the scaffolding fell on him and, and killed him. Like something like okay. that. Like, like like the figure in right didn't right. exist and at she all. She didn't exist okay. at all. Sure. And that it would be the church, his shit would kill him or something. I don't know. But yeah, I just, and I'm not even saying that it was the wrong choice or bad choice. It just, I have not made my peace with it yet. Uh, <laughs> but yes. And so then we have the funeral of John and we, as the audience, realize that, you know, the boat that he saw, when he saw Laura and the two sisters on that boat, it mm-hmm. was him seeing his own was, future, yeah. his own funeral barge that, yeah. going down the canal. Right. You're you're not alone in in having trouble with that ending. A lot of a lot of critics did too. Mm-hmm. For me, I mean, it you use the word atonal. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think it's jarring. <laughs> it's like suddenly we're in a different movie. But for me, that's almost why it works. The sort of the randomness of it. I don't I don't know how to explain it. It's like it's like that figure is just death. Mm-hmm. That that's what that figure represents. Mm-hmm. And it happens to be that in this time and place, death looks like a, what do you, what, dwarf witch? Dwarf witch, Is sure. that what you were calling her? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And John, in his just refusal to acknowledge anything beyond his own rationality, has led himself right into this. Mm-hmm. Which I think, you know, we maybe we talk about free will versus fate a little bit in this. Like, could he have avoided this? If he loved Venice, I imagine. I mean, doesn't the whole notion of seeing the future of precognition imply inevitability? I think... 
So Garnet, right? From, <laughs> from Steven, Steven Universe. Universe. <laughs> okay. She can see possibilities. Okay. And uh, then you ha- you make a choice. Okay. So I think it's sort of like that. It's like you can it's see like, the possibility. This is the most probable. This is the most probable, but that doesn't mean you can't make a choice and something different can happen. Okay. Um, so I think that there's still there's free will based on the knowledge that you have. There was an article... A very good article I read by Jason Horsley in Cinephilia and Beyond. And he, he started the article retelling the story of the appointment in Samara. I don't know if you know that legend story. Briefly, it's about a man who runs into death mm-hmm. in Baghdad. And then he flees to Samara to get away from death. Mm-hmm. And death is there waiting for him in Samara and said, basically... I was surprised to see you in Baghdad because I knew we had an appointment tonight mm. in Samara. Mm-hmm. So basically, by trying to escape death, he, got he, there had, quicker. he had gotten where he was always fated to be. Mm-hmm. So the, the effort of trying to escape fate is the fulfillment of fate, mm. which I think is something we see in a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's kind of what's going on here. I mean, it's, well... I'm not sure, because we never see him leave Venice, so we don't know. Right, we don't see him try to... Right. Escape fate. So here, the fatal flaw is he his unwillingness to listen to his own to listen to his own inner voice, his own intuition mm-hmm. to deny if we are doing the sort of male female sort of duality to deny the female in him, right? The feminine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The final shot of along those lines, the final shot of Laura is interesting mm-hmm. because she we see her on that funeral barge mm-hmm. going by. She's almost smiling. She looks at peace. And Rogue told her to smile in that scene, and Julie Christie apparently resisted that. Like, what do you mean, smile? Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's what Rogue said. Rogue said she is at peace. She, Mm -hmm. you know, she knows things that she didn't know before. She's made her peace with the past, made her peace with grief at that point. Some people have suggested she may be pregnant. Sure. Okay. I don't know if Rogue ever confirmed Mm -hmm. that one way or the other, but... Oh, speaking of theories, I came across an interesting video on YouTube, which I didn't agree with all of it. It it went way beyond any kind of rational argument to me. But I thought it was an interesting suggestion, the suggestion that the brother killed Christine. No, that's dark. In the opening of the movie, right? But it convinced me enough that I thought, hmm, Hmm. because there are those shots of him with blood on his hands, with the glass... Um, I don't, I, I'm not sure how it would change anything if it's true, but it was an interesting, <laughs> well, yeah, interesting thought. I mean, it would, I, yeah, that. And part of that is simply like, how do you drown in a pond? In a pond. Like I mean, that. I don't. I mean, so shallow. You know, little kids drown. I guess. I, yeah, I mean. This video uses the argument like she, when we see her drown, she's on her back. She is, as if she's been pushed in. Right. Or as if someone is holding her feet mm. while they drown her. I don't. That would be pretty fucked up. Um. <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. I haven't really thought it through whether I re- actually agree with that or. Do we remember why he got what the accident was at school? Uh, I don't remember what happened. I think it was. They say it was like a live fire accident. I mean, some of those British boarding schools they do like military. I mean, maybe he. If, was... if he's at military school, it was some kind of accident like that. I don't remember. But maybe he is a. Fucking maybe he's a little psychopath, yeah. right? That does that. I mean, yeah. That. <laughs> okay, just just another way to go with this, I guess. All right. So, what was your overall? I mean, overall impression of this? Did you find it scary? I didn't find it scary. I found it disorienting and beautiful, challenging, and and then you know the ending was just. I'm, yeah, I don't know about the ending, but <laughs> overall, I liked it a lot. Actually, I think it's a really beautiful film. 
Would, is that the kind of ending that would give you nightmares, or was it just too? Did it strike you too silly? For it may that? have given me nightmares if I watched it when I was like eight at my grandma's house, like mm-hmm. you did. But um, yeah, no, that fucked me know, up. Right in my old age, my wizened <laughs> age, uh, it, did, it really was just like, what the fuck is this? Um, <laughs> more so than anything. So, do you want to go to Venice? Sure, why not? Okay, didn't scare you away from Venice. No, but I mean, if somebody tells me I need to get out of Venice, I will be getting out of Venice. You you would listen to that like first time. Yeah, absolutely, you would not have to repeat it. Like, All right, well, <laughs> well, this we started this conversation talking about what we believe in. Mm-hmm. So you and I said I believe that there are people who can see things, and mm-hmm. I think it's best to listen to those folks, <laughs> or else you get stabbed uh, by a dwarf hatchet witch. in the neck. Yeah, <laughs> a hatchet, a cleaver. It was a like cleaver a cleaver. It was, yeah. it was a substantial knife, whatever it was. Yes. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week as our Halloween movie marathon continues. Nakia, there are some films like Don't Look Now that I think we should watch because they're universally respected cinematic masterpieces. And then there are some films that I think we should watch just because I need you to be aware that they exist so that I can, you know, make references to them so that they can become part of the shared vocabulary of our marriage. This is going to be some trash. <laughs> okay. You know, last year, Sleepaway Camp was one of these one of these for. films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and next week is another one of these films. We are going to be watching Dario Argento's Phenomena from 1985. Okay. This is a movie about which I'm sure you know absolutely nothing. Nope. Okay. I will tell you this is a movie in which Jennifer Connelly has a telepathic connection to insects, and that is not in the top five weirdest things about the film. What value is there <laughs> in having a telepathic connection to insects? You can communicate with insects. You can right. like, to, control to what end? insects. To do what? I guess we will have to wait and see. It's about as useless as Hawkeye and Avengers. <laughs> what the fuck am I going to do with that With power? bows and arrows? Yeah, exactly. It's an odd, really odd comparison Because I find him use, I don't understand his value add. And so I don't understand the value add of this Of being power? able to control insects? Yeah. Insects will fuck you up, man. I okay, you, you wait and see. Okay. <laughs> For those of you watching along at home, Phenomena is currently streaming free for Amazon Prime members and members of Shudder, and it's also available for anyone to watch on Tubi with some limited ads. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can subscribe to the podcast, download earlier episodes, find our contact or social media links, or make a donation to support our work. As always, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch. I feel like there's some prejudice involved here. It, it's like not it's, prejudice. You know, I'm, I'm actually admitting that I'm the, coming from the mythology a, of my peoples, no, the Celtic exactly. you know, mythology. I'm just saying not, that... You're just dismissing it No, I'm not dismissing it. Hand. I'm saying that I have an inherent bias because I'm rooted in a particular mythology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fairies and leprechauns... Selkies, you know. I don't know what the hell is that? They're women who turn into seals, or I'm sorry, seals turn into who, seals? seals who turn into women. Actually, mm-hmm. the hell? <laughs> Why do they turn into seals? I, I actually think they are seal, seals that turn into women. I think it's it's kind of like mermaids, only they're seals and they can assume human 
form, and uh, I think usually in the myths sort of marry a, a human man. So they're but seals they're that can turn into women. Se- seals. And mm-hmm. then they can marry human men. Yes. And do they remain human women, or do they... Well, that's where it gets complicated. <laughs> so this whole thing where the man has to keep their seal pelt hidden, and if the Selkie finds it, then they can go back to the sea and turn back into... So in a way, it's sort of like kind of slavery, indentured servitude. Right? Of that's the like seal taking woman. somebody's passport. <laughs> I'm not an expert on the mythology here. I'm just saying that that's... Why are we so weird about the aquatic shit? So, like, <laughs> Ariel has to give up her whole she, she fucking life. She has to give up her voice. And her voice. And her fins. For this basic bitch-ass dude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's with the fish, ladies? What is that about? <laughs> now, are sirens part I mean, fish? it's the romance of the sea projected onto the, you know... Men wanting to fuck fish? Fantasy. Sure, if you want to go that okay. way. Uh-huh. What are sirens? Sirens are aquatic sea nymphs who <laughs> lure men to their deaths. So much fish. They're bad. They're, you know... No, that sounds... They're like succubi that's of awesome. the sea. Those are my heroes. <laughs> so okay so you don't you don't believe in any of that i would be a fan of the sirens i'm not a fan of people hiding seal pelts in order to (laughs) trap their wives into you know arranged marriages or whatever the hell that situation is so no okay uh there's a movie we can watch called the secret of roan inesh about the selkies we can watch that one of these days i don't want to see seal women i think it's gonna annoy you a lot probably yeah i don't want to see that (laughs) 